We are beginning chapter 3 of John's Gospel. So let's go right into the text, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now right away, we can ask ourselves, why does he begin this way, there was a man? Why doesn't he just say, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus? But if you go back to chapter 2, just a couple of verses before chapter 3, starting at verse 25, John, who's the author of the Gospel, says, Because Jesus knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's the last verse before the first verse of chapter 3. And then it begins, and now there was a man. What John is saying is that man, collectively, is man and woman, all of us, fallen humanity. So this is man in its fallen state, unregenerated. And that's how he wants to begin chapter 3, which is such an important chapter, because John is going to tell us, and really Jesus is the one who's saying this, that we cannot get to heaven on our own. We need to be regenerated. We need to have a new life, a new spiritual life given from above. And that's why he emphasizes, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was just a typical man, except he was very educated in Judaism. But still, the Old Testament was not sufficient in and of itself to bring men and women to heaven. Even all of the animal sacrifices were not sufficient. The law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai was not sufficient in and of itself to save fallen humanity. And that's why this chapter begins this way. Especially with Nicodemus, because Nicodemus and all of the Pharisees considered themselves that through their heritage, through their birth, through physical descent, that was what made them special in God's eyes because they interpreted the Old Testament as God calling Israel his chosen people. Through physical descent, one is favored by God. Jesus is going to say that's not true. That's why he is so pleased when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him about who Jesus is. So then let's continue in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's a good beginning for Nicodemus to acknowledge that Jesus is a teacher, a rabbi, and that he is from God. Good beginning. But again, not sufficient. Yes, question. Yeah, the question is, why did Nicodemus come by night and what would have happened if he had been caught by the other Pharisees? So we're not told that, but there would be some speculation that Nicodemus was not sure who Jesus was and he didn't want to be called out by his brother Pharisees for checking out this know-nothing carpenter who has no pedigree, who's not from the rabbinic schools, and who's doing these so-called signs. 
So he's obviously concerned about his reputation. And that would be one reason why he came at night. But there's others. Night or evening was the favored time for the Pharisees to actually study because there would be peace and quiet and they would use the evening hours to pour over the Torah. But there's also a third implication here because night and day, darkness and light, is a major theme in the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's a sense of opposition between light and darkness, good and evil, the two ways, which will be a constant theme throughout scripture. But what's interesting here is that Nicodemus is coming at night. He's in the dark, so to speak, but he's approaching the light. And we'll see throughout the Gospel of John that he is making progress from darkness to light. Because toward the end of the Gospel, he does two important things. First of all, he defends Jesus to his brother Pharisees, saying Jesus is not getting a fair trial and is criticized. And then secondly, when Jesus dies, he brings all these spices to the tomb so there will be a proper burial. So he's obviously had a progression of his faith that Jesus is not just a typical rabbi. So he is going from darkness to light. And that's a major theme in the Gospel of John. You've got other people like the woman at the well, who is going from darkness to light. We'll see that when we get to chapter 4. The person born blind comes from darkness to light, not just physically, but spiritually, when he encounters Christ. So there's that constant theme. On the other hand, we have people going from light to dark as well in the Gospel. Judas comes from light. He is chosen by Jesus as one of the twelve, and that he ends up in darkness. So there's that opposition, that conflict, the war between good and evil. So this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we, the authoritative we, since he is a ruler now, Nicodemus was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which was like a supreme court. And so he had authority as regards to Jews. He was very educated. He had this legal authority. So he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. Obviously, Nicodemus has heard about Jesus' miracles, probably heard about changing water into wine. But if you look back at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are many, many miracles that Jesus does right off the bat, especially if you read Mark's Gospel. He just does one miracle after another, exorcisms and healings. So this would have been well known. So he says that you are from God. And then Jesus answers, truly, truly. And when Jesus says truly, truly, he means this is like a major point that Jesus wants to make. So it's crucial that we get the proper understanding of what he's about to say. And what he's about to say has been very, very disputed by the commentators ever since the Protestant Reformation. So let's walk through this carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born anew. Could have two meanings, one either born from above or born again. 
in a sense, both meanings are applicable because to be baptized is to be born from above. Because the Spirit comes from God, from above, and descends upon Jesus at his baptism and upon all the baptized. So the source of the renewal of baptism is from above. But it also has the sense of being born again. That is, being given a new life, a spiritual rebirth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, one cannot see the kingdom of God. So the implications here are immense. Jesus flat out says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So even though Nicodemus has this great pedigree, he's learned it in the law, Jesus is telling him flat out, you cannot see the kingdom in your present state. That's the state of fallen humanity. Yes? We do good deeds because of our faith in Jesus. And that's never been brought up. The good deeds always seem to come in order to acquire something. It's how I look at it. You're asking a very important question, and it gets back to the very basics of what it means to be born again. What the Catholic understanding is of justification. How are we saved? Now, in your particular case, so if everyone didn't hear, I'll just repeat the comment. The comment was, I didn't really understand baptism until I was much later in my life. But I would, I would say, but you were baptized, uh, I assume, yes, as a child. And so the Catholic Church has a teaching that the sacrament conveys the grace, even though you don't understand it. Otherwise, there's no way an infant is going to understand baptism. But the church teaches, and this is a very, very important teaching, that in fact, the sacrament conveys the grace by virtue of the sacrament. This is called ex opere operato, the Latin, which translates from the work performed. So as long as you were validly baptized, and I assume you were since you were baptized in the church, the Holy Spirit was given to you. You were born again. Now, the fact that you didn't quite understand all the implications until later certainly affects your ability to grow, perhaps, in holiness. And so to that extent, there was a failure in catechesis along the way because we really should be taught what does it mean to be baptized because if we don't understand that, nothing else makes really too much sense. Baptism is the entrance into the spiritual life. And it's very important we understand what baptism does because it's not just a sacrament that happens way back when we were infants. It's an ongoing sacrament, which is why it's renewed at every Easter. We renew those promises. And when we come into church every Sunday, we dip our hands into the holy water font and bless ourselves with the sign of the cross. That's a renewal, a reminder of our baptism. Baptism is key. So I'm glad you asked that question because I think you're not alone. I think many, many Catholics don't really understand the full implications of baptism. But that doesn't mean, as you may have suggested, that if you had died, you were going to hell. You were brought up in the church and you received the sacraments and you were cooperating as best you could. Born again. Well, that's why we're going to go into it. <laughs> okay, so let's continue with this, with this text because Nicodemus had trouble with it. Okay, another question here. Right. 
there's a whole list of implications from baptism, but we'll get to that. Yeah, there is that mark that we get in baptism, where we're sealed. We belong to God. We're configured to Christ. That's what the baptismal seal means. We can never lose that mark. Even though we may have sinned grievously and end up in hell, we still have that mark. So it does have profound implications. So Nicodemus has real trouble with this. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus gives the fallen human answer to that. He makes a hyperbole out of it. Because he wants clarification, so he's telling Jesus, okay, you're telling me I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born? Now he understands that's not true, but he wants clarification, so he, he makes that statement. And Jesus answers. And again, he says, truly, truly. Like, this is immensely important. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's where the dispute has arisen. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Now, the church fathers had no difficulty with that whatsoever in interpreting that as baptism. You think that's pretty obvious because we've been brought up with that understanding, but the Protestant reformers and a lot of them that came after that, especially the Reformed tradition, the Baptists, Evangelicals, would have great difficulty understanding what that means. It has nothing to do with baptism. That's generally what they consider. I'm just going to give you three quotes, although I could give you many, many, we could be here all day, from the Church Fathers about what this means to be born of water and the Spirit. Here is Gregory of Nyssa. This is AD 382. Quote, In the birth by water and the Spirit, Jesus himself led the way in his birth, drawing down upon the water by his own baptism, the Holy Spirit, so that in all things he became the firstborn of those who are spiritually born again and gave the name of brethren to those who partake in a birth like to his own by water and the Spirit. Gregory of Nyssa is saying Jesus is the one who interpreted that because in his own baptism, he was baptized by John. When he came up from the water, the Holy Spirit came down. So there's water and spirit linked to baptism. Here is Ambrose of Milan, who, as you know, was the spiritual father to St. Augustine. He writes in 381, We are baptized with water and the spirit. We are buried in the element of water that we may rise again renewed by the spirit. For in the water is the representation of death, in the spirit is the pledge of life. That the body of sin may die through the water, which encloses the body as it were in a kind of tomb, that we by the power of the spirit may be renewed from death of sin being born again of God. <coughs> now, I'm going to stop there because we can spend the rest of the morning with the church fathers. Now, for the Catholic Church, this was defined in the Council of Trent that water and spirit means baptism. They had to define it because it was being challenged by the Protestant reformers. 
they didn't have to define it before because for 1,500 years there was no issue with that interpretation because the church fathers spoke clearly about that. But if you were to ask the typical evangelical Baptist minister or parishioner, they would deny that. And they would say, the water refers to our first birth. It's the water of our mother and the amniotic fluid. That's what water is. You've got to be born in the natural, first of all, to get to heaven. But then they separate it from uh, the spirit, saying that the water is the water of the first birth has nothing to do with baptism. Rather, the spirit refers to being baptized in the spirit when you say and make a declaration that I turn my life over to Christ. Then you are baptized in the spirit. So they totally remove baptism from the equation because they consider water just to be the water of the first birth and nothing to do with the baptism of regeneration. Question over here. They would consider it just like any other baptism. For them, baptism is simply a symbol. It, it affects nothing. It doesn't cause anything. It's just symbolic. And so generally for those Protestants who hold this view, baptism is simply an external representation that you are serious about your faith and you want to be part of the community. But it doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't convey grace. It has no effects that way. Question over here? Okay, we accept it. Good question. Well, the question is, well, why then do we accept some of the Protestant baptisms? We do because the scripture says that if you're baptized in water and you invoke the Trinity, then the effects of baptism occur. Whether or not you agree with it, that's irrelevant. As I said, ex opere operato. So generally Protestants will obey the scriptures and baptize using the Trinity and pouring water or dunking or sprinkling. As long as you do that, if you conform to the right, R-I-T-E, then it's effective. Whether they agree to it or not, we accept that they use the correct formula. God knows what that represents, because God is the one who is bringing this to us, and so we accept it. And that's why we accept non-Catholic Christians as brothers and sisters, because we accept their baptism as truly being born again, even though they may not accept the same interpretations. Now, not all non-Christians we would accept, because some of them will not use the Trinitarian formula. They'll just use baptized in Christ, or we would not accept, uh, let's say, Jehovah's Witnesses or others like that. Yes? So further to that, who can do a legitimate baptism? Yeah. Well, who can do a legitimate baptism, therefore, is the question. So the Catechism addresses that. In this case of necessity, anyone can baptize, as long as you use the proper formula and you use water. So if you baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and you use water, you're baptized. As long as the person who's baptizing has the intention of actually baptizing, whatever their understanding is, they have the intention of baptizing. And if it's in a case of necessity, then the church would say the person is baptized. Usually necessity means like you're in danger of death. All you have to have is the intention to baptize. 
That's what the Catechism says. So you don't have to be a baptized person to baptize. You simply have to have the intention of baptizing and use the proper formula, even though your understanding of it may be skewed. Okay? Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This fulfills really John the Baptist's prediction in the prologue, well, actually in chapter 1, verse 33, and in the prologue, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So just to recap, because the prologue was the introduction of all these major themes. So in chapter 1, verse 12, we have, He came to his own, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, i.e., born again. And then in chapter 1, verse 33, we have this statement by John the Baptist. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Yes, you do need faith. So he said an atheist could baptize. Could baptize. The atheist doesn't have to have faith. But the, but the person who is being baptized would have to have faith. Now for an infant, it's the community. Or the, and the godparents, obviously. Okay. Now, it's not just the church fathers who linked water and spirit to baptism, but John's Gospel does it as well. In fact, the entire scripture does it from the opening verses of Genesis right to the end. So for Genesis chapter 1, we have the Spirit hovering over the water. And as a result, we have new birth. And the Hebrew word is ruah, which could be interpreted wind, but could also be interpreted spirit. So the spirit hovered over the waters of creation, and God brought life. That's just one example. Later on in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, when you have the flood, what causes the flood waters to recede? God sends a wind over the waters, and they recede. And the wind, that's the same word in Hebrew, ruach, which means could mean spirit. So God's spirit on the waters causes this new life. Because once the waters recede, you've got this new beginning with Noah and his family. At the Red Sea, what caused the waters to part when Moses brought the people through? It was the wind. Same word. Spirit and water is linked to new life. And I'm just giving you a couple they're all over the place. And then when you get to, let's say, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter actually goes back and says, you know that incident in the flood? He specifically links that to a type of baptism which saves you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. 
who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So, water and the Spirit are always linked to baptism. With respect to the Red Sea, when I said the wind caused the waters to separate so that Israel could pass through and be saved, Paul recognizes that as a prefiguring of baptism. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's turn to that, starting at verse 1, Paul looks back at the Red Sea incident, and this is how he interprets it. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he interprets that incident in Exodus chapter 14 with baptism. Water and spirit mean baptism, new life. Now I could go on and give you lots more of these references, but this is why the church fathers saw so clearly and interpreted John chapter 3, unless one is born of water and the spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God, applies to baptism. So the question is, what happens for children who are not baptized by their parents? They are not outside of God's providence and his salvation, and they can still be saved. We leave the judgment to God, who loves everyone and wants everyone to come to the knowledge and to be saved, and that's where the church leaves it. The church is saying God is ever merciful, it's not the child's fault that they weren't baptized. God is not bound by his sacraments. He prefers to convey grace through the sacraments that he himself initiated, but he's not going to be bound by it. So let's say you grew up in some kind of remote place, you never heard of Christ. You still have the natural law implanted in you because you're created in God's image and likeness. You know good from evil. If you cooperate with that natural law implanted in you as best you can and live a good life, the church teaches, and this is clearly set out in Vatican II, the Magentium, you can be saved. It's risky because you don't have all the other helps that we have, such as the rest of the sacraments, the teachings of the church, sacred traditions, sacred scripture, the lives of the saints, you're missing all of that, and you've got an enemy who wants you damned, and you're still subject to those temptations, so it's very risky, which is why we always need to evangelize. One more question, then we gotta move on. Right. Yeah, so again, the church holds these together. In baptism, we are justified, we are made holy. Now we can grow in holiness, and we should, and in sanctification, but it's not separated. What the church teaches about baptism is that when you're baptized, you are incorporated into Christ and his church. That's one effect. You become a member of Christ's body, the church. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit bring to a person? 
sanctifying grace. And if you have sanctifying grace in your soul at the time of your death, you're going to heaven. You may have to make a detour to purgatory, but if you have sanctifying grace in your soul, you're not damned. And baptism gives you sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace gives you the power, the ability, to cooperate with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? We know it from our confirmation. Those gifts bring us to heaven. They're meant for us in our sanctification. That comes right in baptism. It's part of that justification. That's right. So Jesus' death on the cross redeemed us, atoned for our sins. So I'll go back to baptism. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. All of our sins are forgiven. Original sin, actual sin, and the punishment due for sins, which is why if you die immediately after baptism, you don't have to go to purgatory because the punishment for sin is actually wiped out. But you also get not just the Holy Spirit, you're marked with this seal and you're configured to Christ and you're brought into the Paschal Mystery. So there's all of these benefits of baptism, which is why we don't separate justification from sanctification in the Catholic Church. Again, as I said before, if someone asks you whether you are saved, the answer is, I have been saved in baptism. I am being saved by that sanctifying grace in my soul, which is always nourished by the sacraments, and by God's grace I will be saved. That grace of final perseverance. It's like this lifelong project. Uh, just one more thing I just have to point out. In the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, starting at verse 25, all of this was predicted by the prophets, and Ezekiel makes it very clear. And this speaks to your question, Bill, about justification and sanctification. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 25. God is speaking through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water upon you to cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. What he's saying there is, God is in the future going to sprinkle us with clean water, baptism, that will cleanse us from our impurities, original sin, actual sins, and give you a new heart. So to answer your question, Bill, in baptism and the Catholic understanding of justification is that when we're born again, it's not as if God is making a legal declaration that you have my righteousness, even though you're still a sinner and will always be a sinner. But rather, through this cleansing water, God will himself work in us through the Spirit to rejuvenate us, to make us new, to bring us into a new heart where we can cooperate with God and actually be holy. Not just have a declaration that you are holy, but actually be holy being a cooperator in the divine nature, which is what St. Peter says in his second letter. 
you are divinized, he's saying. We're becoming partakers of God's divine nature who is working in us through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be justified. God working in us to bring us into a new cooperation where we're actually doing holy things, which is where works comes in. Works by themselves do not save us. But when God initiates by his grace, called prevenient grace, beforehand grace, that grace moves us to repentance. And when we repent and ask God to forgive our sins, then that cooperation just brings new graces and new graces. It's called cooperating grace and then sanctifying grace. All of the graces are working in our soul, but they begin in baptism. By cooperating with the grace that's working in you. We become holy by cooperating with God's work in us. By cooperating with our new state of being in sanctifying grace, we can actually do good, live a life of charity and faith and hope. And so it's not just an intellectual ascent. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. It's a matter of the heart, of the will. Doing God's will as he inspires us to do it, cooperating with the grace that's always working in us through the sacraments. That's what it means to be holy. We become a new creation. As Ezekiel is predicting, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. That's what baptism does. That's the Catholic understanding of justification. Now, let's see what the New Testament says about that, because there are definite quotes, and I'll just go through them very quickly, and then we'll move on. Let's look at, very quickly, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Now, this is St. Peter. He preaches the first homily after Pentecost, and he's so effective because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So definitely baptism does have causal power. The sacraments the church teaches are not just symbols, but they effect what they symbolize. That's the definition of a sacrament. And exactly, good, good point. That's why Jesus makes such a big deal. When he sends his disciples out, he says, he doesn't say, write a Bible. He says, go out and preach in my name and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you to the end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Baptism, because it has these effects. Continuing in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22, verse 16. Now, Paul here tells of his conversion. Ananias has come to Paul. This is after Paul's great Damascus conversion experience, where he's knocked off whatever he was writing and uh, is blinded. And we might think, well, he was converted right then and there. Done deal. No, he has to do something more than just encounter Christ on the road. Ananias is sent to him 
The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the just one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? You know, he's saying this to Paul. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Wash away your sins. Baptism has effects. Now, I could multiply these, and I won't because we'll, we'll be here all day, but again, the scriptures are clear. Baptism is powerful. Well, let's continue with the text in John chapter 2, starting at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now here, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. And he's basically saying to Nicodemus and to all of us that the Holy Spirit can't be sort of categorized, captured, put in a bottle, manipulated. It's like the wind, it goes where it will, but it has effects. You know the wind because you can feel it and you can see the effects. It's the same with the spirit. The spirit is powerful, but it can't, you can't make a project out of it. Yeah, and it's the same word in, in Hebrew, yeah. as I was mentioning. Wind and spirit and breath basically come from the same word, ruah. Yeah, that's right. So when John says the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, what he means is the spirit does that. So he's trying to make the connection. As you feel the wind, Nicodemus, and you see the effects of wind in the trees, so with the Holy Spirit, the spirit has effects in your life. Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand this? Now he's not insulting Nicodemus here, but he is trying to open Nicodemus's heart to understand this is such an important doctrine that if he doesn't understand this, he will remain in his sins. And so he's saying, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, and now Jesus uses the authoritative we. We speak of what we know. Now he's also referring to we being the Father and the Spirit in me, the Trinity. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. There's the word testimony, which is key to the whole Gospel of John. As I mentioned in the first session, the Gospel of John is a court scene. There's a trial going on. There's witnesses on either side. Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus on his side as a witness. And all of us were called to be witnesses. Once we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's ministry of priest, prophet, and king. That's a teaching of the church. It's in the catechism. By the way, Catechism is crucial to understanding the scriptures because it's the whole sacred tradition, the church fathers and so forth, interpreting what the texts actually mean. And if you don't have the catechism in one hand and the, and the Bible in the other, you're going to go astray. 
Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here Jesus is saying, basically, he's talking about his pre-existence, his divinity. He is the one who descended from heaven and the one who will ascend to heaven. He came from God. He's come here to save us. He will return to God. He calls himself the Son of Man. And as we said before, taking it right out of Daniel chapter 7, which is a title for that divine figure who came on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days conferred on the Son of Man a kingdom that will last forever. Jesus is claiming that. He's saying, I am the Son of Man. I came down from heaven, and now I'm giving you this great gift of water in the Spirit, if you would open your heart and receive. Now, he says something very important in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here, Jesus is introducing Nicodemus to the cross, something he does not understand, and yet is prefigured in the scriptures. And what Jesus is actually doing is quoting from the prophet Isaiah that Nicodemus certainly knew. Chapter 52, verse 13, the suffering servant, it says, the suffering servant will be lifted high. Direct quote. And that's a prophetic statement by Isaiah, actually God speaking through the prophet. And it refers to the incident when the Israelites are traveling through the desert after being released from captivity in Egypt. They were a stubborn lot and they were complaining wanting to go back to their favorite foods, even though they would be back in captivity. They complained so bitterly against Moses and against God that God sent fiery serpents to bite them, and some died. And they were in such a state of panic. They went to Moses. Moses went to God. And God said to Moses, craft this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and those who gaze on it will be saved. That's what Jesus is referring to. And Nicodemus certainly knew that incident backwards and forwards, but he didn't connect it the way that Jesus is now teaching him. So when Jesus is lifted up from the earth on the cross, and we gaze on that, which is why the Catholic Church has the crucifix, the cross, with the body of Christ on it in every church. The connection there is deliberate. That what's happening at every sacrifice, holy sacrifice of the Mass, is the cross of Christ is being represented. So that we who were not at the cross 2,000 years ago and did not witness can participate in the Paschal Mystery by this representation of the cross. And we gain the benefits from it. We offer our own sacrifices in union with Christ's sacrifice to the Father. We bring ourselves to Mass having been prepared, reflected on the readings for the coming Sunday, praying during the week, offering our sufferings and our life, our dreams, our hopes, and then we bring it all to the altar in the offertory together with our 
collection, place it on the altar, and we unite our sacrifice with the sacrifice of Christ to the Father. And then we receive the crucified and risen Christ in the Eucharist. That's all possible because we're baptized. If we're not baptized, we cannot partake in the Eucharist, which is why this is so, so crucial. And why we need to evangelize and know our story and know our kerygma. Kerygma being the short summary of the essentials of the faith, which is exactly what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus, telling him the kerygma and connecting the dots. Kerygma. In other words, it has to be short, to the point, but summarizing the faith. If we could do that and have it in our minds so that, because you never know when someone's going to say, well, why the heck are you Christian? Why do you go to Mass? What is this business about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass? Who is Christ? And you've got the answer right there because you, you know your story and you know the kerygma and you can connect the dots. That's what we're called to do. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up to whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God, this is now here, Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life eternal. Notice it's God who takes the initiative here, not us. And this is where grace is active. We cannot be saved by our works alone. Works do not generate God's favor and grace. It's grace first working in our life, bringing us to cooperate and grow in holiness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief here again is not an intellectual Ascent, it's the will. It's volitional. It's living the moral life. Now he gets into this dualism again, this war between the light and darkness. He says in verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There's the two ways. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Well, they're going to be exposed at the last judgment. But he who does what is true comes into the light that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought by God. It's God who takes the initiative, working through our conscience for sure, because we know when we've done something wrong and there's that war within our soul when we sin. But through the grace of God, we come and confess. And for a Catholic, we go to sacrament of reconciliation. And if we had sinned mortally, it's like a new birth. It's a new baptism in a sense. Because we're given this, we come from death to life. It's a resurrection. Sanctifying grace is given anew because it's lost by mortal sin. But if we stay in the dark, because we don't want our deeds to be exposed, then in the end, God will give us our desires, which will not be with him. Okay, let's go through the rest quickly if we can. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea where he remained with them and baptized. Now I need to make a point here. 
which are non-Catholic brothers and sisters. When they say John chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 have nothing to do with baptism, you've got to look at the context of the opening chapters. It's surrounded by baptism. In chapter 1, we have the baptism of Jesus, water and the Spirit. In chapter 2, we have ceremonial baptismal waters that the Jews used in the Old Testament for cleansing that Jesus changed into wine, the best of wine. So you've got, again, water and the Spirit, God changing that water into wine. And now here in chapter 3, we're in the same chapter, toward the end, John is talking about baptism. So the, it's surrounded by baptism. The context gives meaning to the text. Verse 23, John was also baptizing because there was much water there and people came and were baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying. And they came to John, this is John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness here, is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, I must decrease. Very important theme here being introduced, well, repeated, and that is Jesus is the bridegroom and John is the best man. So all those texts in the Old Testament that talk about God wanting to marry his people Israel are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the bridegroom who wants to marry his church and bring forth spiritual fruit, the fruits of the spirit. So we had a question? No, I think I read that the apostles were baptizing, but not Jesus himself. Right. Was he preparing that? I don't know why that would be. So this is clarified in chapter 4, the first couple of verses, where it says Jesus actually was not baptizing. His disciples were baptizing, but Jesus was not baptizing. Jesus was preaching. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, what was the last chapter in John's Gospel all about? The wedding feast of Cana, where Jesus is the bridegroom because he's the one who changes water into wine. So we've got this as a major theme in the beginning of John's Gospel. And all through the Old Testament. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 15, we hear this. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? I.e., I am the bridegroom, and I'm with you. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So again, Jesus is pointing out that he is the bridegroom and the wedding feast is underway. The question is whether we will 
come to the wedding feast. And what is the holy sacrifice of the Mass? It's the wedding feast. Because our bridegroom lays down his body for his bride, the church, and there is a consummation. You know, the Pharisees and the Jews in general knew the Old Testament and that God wanted to marry his people. They just didn't believe Jesus was the bridegroom because he wasn't the Messiah. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and of the earth he speaks. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now this above all, John, the author of this gospel, is tying the beginning of the chapter where he talks about being born from above. He's tying the beginning now to the end. One must be born from above to enter the kingdom of heaven. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Again, just repeating what the prologue said. He came to his own people, and his own people received him not. He who receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Again, testimony, big theme in the gospel and in our lives. For he whom God has sent, Jesus is the sent one. That's one of the titles of Christ. He's the sent one. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for it is not by measure that he gives the Spirit. In other words, he doesn't ration it out in stingy ways. He pours it out in baptism. He doesn't want to hold back anything for us who want to receive. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So it's baptism and faith. Those should not be separated. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life. So here, John is contrasting not belief and unbelief, but belief and disobedience. How do we know whether we actually believe? What's the test? Obedience. It's said over and over again in the Gospels and in the Epistles. The one who loves God is the one who obeys the commandments. So he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. All right, we got through the chapter. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Help us to understand more fully the great gifts you give us and what you ask that we do to share those gifts with our brothers and sisters. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to always live on our baptism through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.